0: to another episode of pod for good a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, oklahoma and the world why they care what we can do and most importantly what you the listeners can do pod for good is produced and edited by ran am productions which is my company so if you like how we sound not necessarily what we say and are thinking about starting a podcast reach out to me i am easy to find pod for good can be found anywhere you get your podcasts If you enjoy what we do here, please make sure to subscribe and share this episode on social media. I'm your Chief Philanthropod and Class Clown for Justice, numero uno, Jesse Ulrich.
1: And I'm your Vice Admiral Philanthropod and Classiest Clown for Justice, Chris Miller.
0: Nice. One day, Chris and I will talk about how long we spend thinking about what we're going to call ourselves before Class Clowns, uh, but not today. This episode, which is a great episode, we had with Kirk Wester-Rivera, the executive director of Growing Together.
1: We talked to Kirk about the power of proximity, place keeping versus place making, and why Arwen's sword is the best quinceañera present.
0: And for those people who hate the uh, Saxonville Bagginses, we crap on them some too, like they deserve. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Kirk from Growing Together on the podcast today.
2: Kirk, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful, man. Good to finally be on. I know uh, been looking forward to this for a while.
0: You know, as of this recording, you are one day out of a very large, big announcement that Growing Together had. So, can you tell us about what happened? I guess was it two days ago
2: or yesterday? Yesterday, yeah, yesterday. In the the searing swamp heat. Um, no, it was it was amazing. We've been working for the last year on. Really, um, a unique strategy that is really absent from, I would argue, the strategy across the city when it comes to housing, which is really ensuring and preserving in perpetuity affordability. Um, so, we launched the first, the second only in the country mixed income neighborhood trust, and it's a rental portfolio um, of rehabbing current stock because we've got a ton of great homes here and making sure that. Um, half of those are are at affordable rates, the other half market. And we basically use the profits from the market to offset the costs for the affordable. So pretty simple in execution. But the other important part is, is it's um, collaboratively governed by members who actually live in the homes that are in the trust. So we've got a fairly sophisticated governance structure that um, allows us to ensure fiscal responsibility, but at the same time allows the community to actually have a say and make sure that the the intended mission is fulfilled. We we've had discussions about housing on this
0: podcast and the idea of community trusts and sort of collective community responsibility has been an idea that's been around. So like why is this one the only only the second one in the country? What is who's the problem? Who 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 should we blame?
2: Yeah. I mean, well there's two, there's two Kinds of trusts. I mean, so this one's unique in that it's a mixed-income neighborhood trust. So typically, we when we talk about trusts, we talk about community land trusts, which also, by the way, we don't have any uh, currently in the city uh, or in Oklahoma for that matter. Um, but a lot of times, it comes down to um, a misperception um, of Tulsa not being a hot market, and so therefore, you don't need to preserve affordability because we have a lot of "quote unquote" affordable uh spaces. But I think the pandemic and what we've seen over the last two years only serves to highlight the fact that um, even Tulsa um, has can have issues with this. And certainly um, if you ever want to have integrated mixed income communities, you have to, you just have to consider how you're protecting affordability, period. Um, and if we don't think about that, then what happens is is you inevitably just push folks out. Um, to have to move elsewhere. So yeah, you may have continued affordability, but it just it, it, it isn't allowing those individuals who have been here all along to be able to take advantage of the improvements that are made within the community. And if we can't do that, then we've missed the boat. Because our general notion is, is that our families want nothing different than what your family wants, what my family wants. It's to allow, invest their kids in great schools to live in a community that's thriving. And what we're seeing is, is that um, when families can raise their children um, in an, an environment like that, um, either free of or dramatically reduce toxic stressors that are imposed upon those kids' lives, that their odds of success financially as they become adults is dramatically increased. And so um, as an organization, as a person that's obsessed with finding solutions um, and you just got exhausted and tired of programs that just you know, bandaid things. Um, this is community land trusts, in my opinion, have to be part of the conversation. And it's something that, frankly, now and Kendall Whittier, we're having to try to make up for lost ground because there hasn't been a public will in the city to, to, to protect affordability.
1: It seems like in general, not just in, in Tulsa, but in, in most markets, mixed income housing is difficult to accomplish. You know, it's the sort of Nimby philosophy that people unfortunately have, where they like it in the abstract, but then they don't want you to do it in their neighborhood. So, how how do you convince people that there is value in this, that it makes the community better, or you know how the philosophy does that?
2: Yeah, I would say that we've been in a unique situation in Kendall Whittier. My um, for reference, my wife and I have intentionally lived here for almost three decades at this point. Um, since the late 90s, and um, we've largely been in a neighborhood that has welcomed um, uh, improvement and has been a key part of defining that improvement. Um, so we've not hit, in fact, even just the issue, the very controversial and understandably so issue of eminent domain has been utilized to success um, on a number of occasions here in the neighborhood. However, we think that the largely what we've seen is those issues often crop up when you don't develop the solutions hand in hand with the community that it's being served. The way we look at our work is pretty uh, straightforward. If you were to um, say you bought a house that is going to be your, your the home that you're going to live in for a while, and you want it to meet all of your your key needs when you dreamed of, of a house, um, and it needs a ton of work, what you would not do is go out and hire a bunch of subcontractors and walk away and expect it to be exactly what you envision six months later, right? Instead, you hire a general contractor whose job it is to make sure that the homeowner's vision becomes a reality, that they adjust their, their their strategy along the way when they see something came up and you can't put that outlet here, or you can't put that light fixture there that you really wanted, or we can't create tear down that wall that we thought we could um, or there's a supply chain issue, and so on and so forth. The way we look at it is, is our job is that general contractor. In this case, the, the homeowner is our residence, and the home is the neighbor. And our, our residents gave a pretty clear vision of what they wanted, and it's our job to unapologetically pursue that vision um, through to fruition. And so it really starts with a vision created by our community. And, um, and, and part of our job has been to inform folks about what the value proposition is along the way. And also to be very candid when we don't succeed, um, so that they, because ultimately it comes down to a sense of trust. And that's what I believe that we've been able to, to have the luxury of, um, for, for quite some time here in this community. Can you, so, and Kirk, you
0: and I have talked about this, like when we're talking about problems in Telsa and in the United States as a whole, a problem happens where we end up focusing on one group's oppression and one group's problems while not including other oppressed groups and their problems. So can you give us a little summary of why, if people are listening who live in town and have maybe vaguely heard of Kendall Whittier, why, what happened to Kendall Whittier and what has what Growing Together been working on this past decade to improve it?
2: Yeah, so I would say just the the kind of Quick and dirty history of Kendall Whittier is that Kendall Whittier was a thriving shopping district, kind of Tulsa's first suburb, if you will, Um, and then began to decline as white flight began to happen and people began to exit to the suburbs and build the suburbs. In fact, what we see from the data is that our our community continued to be disinvested in and continued to decline until about the late '80s, early '90s, when we saw a pretty uh, uh, dramatic uptick in the number of immigrants that came into the community, and it was that. that, that large uptick of immigrants that they begin to, to invest in their community, invest in their homes, to, 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 you know, despite the lack of investment from outside sources, really stabilized the decline. Um, and it wasn't until the '90s that a group of community residents got together and said, "You know, this isn't all there is." and we want to so they got together, created Tulsa's first small area plan um, in 1994 that then led to a series of investments um fast forward to 2005 which is typical of public entities we do a few investments and we like that's good enough you know so it we got a school we got a post office we got a new square um and then largely you didn't see the 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 public entities anymore right and uh so then fast forward to 2006 2007 a handful of us were you know beginning to organize and say is this really all there is? And I don't think that we're done. And, and so out of that came an opportunity to partner with CAP Tulsa and the George Kaiser Family Foundation and Tulsa United Way to really conceive of what a more holistic approach would look like to, to really breaking the cycle of poverty for families. And it was really approaching this from a very comprehensive perspective that included not only mixed income housing, but high quality neighborhood serving education and inclusive economic growth. And so all of those put together, because um, they all affect each other, by the way, right? And that's also part of the other challenge is too often when we think about neighborhoods, we think about things from a single perspective. Like, we're going to invest in economic development. Well, great. Um, nothing irritates me more than the conversations about food deserts. We act like this is some type of you know complicated thing as to why food deserts exist. It's a simple factor. There is a lack of disposable income. Right, and we've segregated our fin- our financial capability away from these communities for generations, and now there's not disposable income to sustain a, a grocery store. So we end up having a nonprofit our way out of it, as opposed to thinking about how do we create great neighborhoods that are actually desirous of all people and ahead of time protect places for everybody to be able to take advantage of that.
1: Well, and we can't talk about the history without bringing up one of Jesse's favorite topics. I two forty four. And that's highway coming through and cutting Kendall Whittier in half. That's right. Uh, so, how did how did that impact things? And and how do you keep the community together when it creates a physical barrier to sort of the northern and southern portion of Kendall Whittier?
2: Yeah, it's definitely been a huge barrier. And in fact, I'll go one further. It's not just the highway going through, but it's the strategic choice of where the exits are. Um, which essentially cut off the the primary economic corridor so that we could get off conveniently to the university or get off conveniently you know down the road. So um it's interesting that you know you bring that up because what has happened over time, there's two actually. Another additional thing that happened is we've seen for, by and large, um, the initial small area plan only stopped at two forty four. So you've seen about ninety percent of the development to date happening south of the expressway. Um, in addition you know we haven't paid as much attention to ensuring that the economic because economic development inclusive economic growth is a new area for us and it's new because we began to realize that even though we completed we completed a, a, a study with a national partner around what the work has has yielded over the last 10 years and it in what it basically demonstrated is we have collectively with our community, with our partners, created Tulsa's only inclusively grown neighborhood. What that means is, is that there are four neighborhoods that showed above average growth for the city. Kendall Whittier appears to be the only one that is primarily benefiting people of color, and in this case, Latinos. Um, as an example, a 209% increase in the number of Latinos with a bachelor's degree. First time in five decades um, that homeowners are, received, are seeing a greater appreciation in their homes than the city average. Most of the a large portion of our Latino community actually are homeowners. I can go on and on, but but the challenge has been is that again that that barrier of the expressway has created some significant issues. Then in 2008, um, we actually had a fairly unified identity as a neighborhood um, where Whittier School at the north joined with Kendall School at the south, and you had Kendall Whittier Elementary. The schools play an important part in a in a, in a social identity. Um, but, you know, n- without any kind of consultation of the community, um, uh, the superintendent at the time of Tulsa spoke schools decided that they would go ahead and take the North side of our neighborhood and separate it out and give it to Sequoia elementary, which was actually in the Sequoia neighborhood. And so what we've seen since 2008 is a significant decline in, in an identity, um, of, of folks North of the expressway, understanding that they're part of the Kendall neighborhood. In fact, I remember the first time I presented to Sequoia elementary who Oddly, has a higher percentage of students from the actual neighborhood than Kenda Whittier Elementary does. um, that they kept asking, why do you keep calling us a Kenda Whittier school? We're not in Kenda Whittier neighborhood. I'm like 85% of your kids are from Kenda Whittier. You are like the highest percentage Kenda Whittier school. (laughs) But again, the name of the school, you know, plays plays a significant part in kind of that identity. And you you can look across the the city in Tulsa and see how many neighborhoods are have kind of have linked their identity to the name of the school. Um, but it's it's a big issue. Um, we've been trying to work hard at trying to figure out how we bring uh, more and more development north expressway, and also learn from some of the challenges that we face on the south side. Um, but it's a slow process. But uh, the beauty of having an organization whose sole job it is to make sure that vision becomes reality is we're not going anywhere, and so we're 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 that squeaky wheel to say hey we're not done yet. <laughs> so um, because it's it's definitely a temptation from public entities to to say a little bit is good enough.
0: So are you involved at all at that, in that development that's right on the other side of the highway across the street from the that grocery store? It was like townhouses. Yes.
2: yes. That's all part of our collaborative. So the, okay. that development ha- is happening because we actually, um, it used to be the old Whittier school and just kind of historical reference that my wife and I with four others, um, Founded a volunteer clinic that is now Community Health Connection um, at that old site. It used to be a volunteer clinic for five, six years, and then um, and then they tore it down. Uh, Tulsa Public Schools did, and then they were putting it up for bid. And we actually saw, you know, that Quick Trip had put a bid on it um, and wanted to build another Quick Trip store. And uh, we're huge fans of Quick Trip, um, but honestly, we have four of them in our neighborhood, and so we we knew that we We felt like uh you know we wanted to make sure our community had a voice in the matter and and, and so we kind of pushed in on that long story short, the community said we want affordable uh, senior housing to be there uh, so Tulsa quick trip saw all that and they they uh, did the right thing, pulled out pulled their request out, and uh, vintage housing purchased that and so vintage housing then struggled with putting together the financial package to get it done um, for the first few years, and so they partnered with Habitat for Humanity to essentially put in mixed income townhomes on the South side. And then of course, uh, vintage housing is on the North side. So, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's all part of the, the overall kind of makeup of what we're trying to do over here and, uh, part of the partnerships, which is largely how we've been doing our work historically.
1: So for people who really only think of Kendall Whittier as sort of the area around Kendall Whittier square, can you tell what the real kind of parameters with the, sure. Si- how how big Kendall Whittier actually is? Yeah, what are the borders? I'm I'm
0: terrible about borders, this
2: Elsa. Yeah, unfortunately, Jesse's just outside of it. Give I'm given him a hard time, and now he's way outside of it. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, so I'm sorry. Basically, the southern border is 11th Street. Uh, the eastern border is Harvard and Utica on the west, and then uh, the Burlington Northern Railroad just north of Independence on the north. So it's two and a half square miles, roughly about 14,000 people. Um, so it's pretty large. Um, it, it encompasses it encompasses uh, six. Um, census tracts, two zip codes, uh, two uh, state representative districts, two city councilors. I uh, know now three city councilors as of the latest redistricting, um, and one school board member. So <laughs> it's a it's a lot. Yeah, we 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 our neighborhood is split every which way but loose when it comes to politics. <laughs> yeah, but na- uh, but we- it should be noted that Tu is physically in the neighborhood. They are south south southeastern uh, kind of anchor.
1: Yeah, that's what I always wondered cuz you know, I'm someone who having grown up in the area and as soon as I could have have lived in sort of the Midtown downtown area and always thought of Kendall Whittier as a rather small pocket until I started going to some of the different events like um what what were some like Kendall uh what were some of the ones we went to Jesse it was like the taste of Kendall Whittier or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. there was like, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. A lot of the main street programs, uh, main street, yeah. Uh, events, yeah. Yeah. And they just and, had Amp and, amp at the square this, uh, this weekend.
1: Yeah. And so seeing, see helping that helped me understand, you know, the scope of it. Cause when it was like, Oh, you know, one of the sites you go to was flows diner. And I was like, I had no idea this was part of Kendall Whittier, you know, and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, the fact that, you all have what is sort of affectionately called the brewery district is a a good chunk of that is also part of Kendall Whittier. So it's, yeah, we have tons of breweries. Yeah, yeah. So some very interesting um, developments. I mean, you could almost do a brewery trail just with Kendall Whittier.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, you're highlighting all of the wonderful things that make up our neighborhood. What, what I would argue, though, is that, again, this is, you're also highlighting the fact that we haven't paid enough attention to making sure that that growth is inclusive. And, um, for example, in the current square, we have four Latino-owned businesses left. Um, only one of those four owns their own property. And so that's and that's not the way it is with our white-owned businesses. And so the key is is now we've shifted over from place making to place keeping. And so how do we how do we begin to to push into that? We're working on several projects right now that that I can't really discuss yet. But really thinking about how we keep these places um, ready and 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 available for our Latino-owned businesses. Latinos being the the primary. Um, marginalized group within our community, and historically, the ones that I would say we've been pushing very hard to to uh, ensure that they're included in in the growth that happens.
1: So, along those lines, how well I might as well get into some what we we'll call what we affectionately call Pod for Sad topics. Yeah, let's do it. so how do you make a population that is so critical to Tulsa? And, I mean, we've talked about before, you know, how, how much they bring to small businesses, stuff like that. Their rate of ownership is, is stronger than the overall community. But the community around them, especially Oklahoma in general, is not super supportive um, to immigrant populations. So how, how do you create an inclusive and supportive environment when there's a lot of external forces kind of working against you? Yeah, I
2: mean I think for us it's it's understanding and allowing them to tell us what's important. Um and it's and it's also identifying the fact that they have to see themselves in the growth that's happening. And so for example, one of the early wins that actually got me into this space is whenever my wife and I were doing some organizing prior to the conception of of growing together. Um the the George Kaiser Family Foundation was working with some community leaders, myself included, around like re, uh, redesigning Kendall Whittier Park. And a lot of folks came to the table, mostly white, older individuals, said, you know, what we need is better baseball diamonds, right? We had baseball diamonds there. I'd never seen anybody use them other than to catch soccer balls. And uh, so I pressed and said, I, I actually don't think anybody really plays baseball in our neighborhood. That's not really the sport of choice and they just looked at me like i was insane so you know we went went about bringing that voice to the table and um i just so happened to be i'd i'd taken a trip to amsterdam um a few months before and saw this mixed use court and presented it and it just you know everybody was super jazzed about it and then of course you know the designers took that and made it what it is and that that mixed use court or multi use court I would say, is the premier feature at that park to where if you go over there, I would put money right now that there's no less than 40 kids out there playing soccer. And that is every night of the summer. And as a result, it starts to uh, create families who are now walking around the park, uh, another family that's selling you know, some concessions there right next to it. And it's, it's night and day, whereas before when I'd go over there, you'd be lucky to see a single individual out there because there's no amenities and certainly no amenities that were that were uh, uh, conducive to the population. So the short of it is, is we've got to make sure that our community that we want to serve is not only at the decision-making table, but they are key informants all along the way. And one of the ways that we try to address that is to make sure that, we put a high priority on individuals who actually live and grew up in this neighborhood both on our staff and on our board and you know that they that they we lean into the expertise that they bring to the table
1: can you talk about that a little bit more why that matters that your staff and board is is made up of people who physically live in the area that you support
2: yeah i would say one of our core values is is that is, is to, that we believe in the power of proximity Um, And I would argue, I mean, it's clear it's a bias I bring to the table as somebody who um, feels strongly about the way in which we do justice. And just kind of a side note, I would say that bias comes from a, a strong belief that for those of us who believe in the work of justice, I believe strongly we should put where we live on the table for that conversation. Because I believe that there's no greater decision that we can make that could amplify our impact. Um, because it forces us to to uh, invest our dollars in places. It forces us to consider investing our kids in the local schools. It forces a whole host of things that um, our society and the American dream, quote unquote, tells us to segregate from. and so so pushing in, I think, is hugely important. But um, what I always want to think about is that um, we look at how we bring on lived expertise, lived experience as a very clear set of expertise that I cannot train you on. So, you know, growing up in my neighborhood and having a set of networks and connections and understanding the history of my neighborhood, I can talk to you about as we're trying to do today, but I can't, I can't really teach you how to really deeply care about the outcomes. And and frankly, to call and we cultivate a very strong culture of discourse within our organization. And You know, that leads to, you know, uh, strong thoughts and pushes on different directions that we could go that I believe ultimately ends up in better outcomes. And then I think the last point I'll make about that is is that we have a strong bias towards um, understanding that we are in a very privileged position to have a set of resources to invest in this community. The easy path is to do what most entities and nonprofits do, which is just to go find the lowest bidder and say, you know, that's how we're going to go. We make an extremely conscious effort to figure out, even if we have to pay a slightly higher price, we believe it's a better proposition to figure out how we can recycle that money as much as possible within our community. And so, for example, even with the mixed-income neighborhood trust, we've been very intentional about hiring people from our neighborhood uh, or businesses that are owned by people of color, um, so that we can have the greatest impact every step of the way. Because it's those it's those little little things that lead to the big things for our listeners.
0: Uh, Kirk and Chris and I are all huge Lord of the Rings fans. And so I I want to play a little sort of like metaphor game here. So if Kendall Whittier is the Shire, who is Saruman in this scenario?
2: Apathy. Oh, nice. It's apathy. Um, I'll, I'll give you a quick example or an uh, uh, anecdote. I was speaking to a, uh, I'm not going to say the entity, but speaking to a, a, a public entity that uh, we work with a lot. And um, somebody on that team, this leadership team, uh, as I was presenting how much investment had been made in the neighborhood and in the schools and so on, asked me a very good question. Um, but the question was, is, um, how do you know when you're done? Because you've invested a lot of money and you know, we've got other neighborhoods that are on fire. And so rhetorically, because I knew I wasn't, the goal wasn't to offend, but it's just to highlight, I knew that this uh, uh, woman um, had a young child who was in elementary school, who uh, was in, you know, had her kid in a Southside school. And I just asked her, you know, if I were to tell you tomorrow that you had to put your kid in Kendall Whittier Elementary, would you do it? And if the answer is anything but yes, then I would say we're far from done, because if it isn't good enough for your kid, it is not good enough for any kid in our neighborhood. And the same goes for where you would invest your family. If you would not invest your family in this neighborhood, then I would argue, are we done? Because our families want nothing different than what you want for your own family. And so the question is, is that if we're really interested in solving the problem, apathy is the number one challenge. Um, we face it every day as people are saying, you know, I think Kendall Whittier is already, you know, improved so to speak right but now we're facing we have to because we we haven't been able to successfully uh get the public entities and and philanthropic entities in the way that we'd like to really advance protections for affordability so you know we're having to play catch up in many ways in some areas but all that being said i would say that is the is that that is our our sauron, so to speak it is it is an all-seeing eye and they look for any chink in the armor of apathy to, to quickly lose momentum, and that's why I would argue that any neighborhood that seeks to do this work in the future, the having a quote unquote community quarterback is the secret sauce because when those entities go away, which they will lose interest, and then typically it's around three to five years um, or a different administration comes along, somebody's got to be waving the flag saying, "We ain't done yet. Our neighborhood demanded this and 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 guess what? you know it's interesting too is living in this neighborhood. You know when the hard times have come because they have come, the painful, challenging times have come. Uh, you know when you feel like throwing in the towel, I just think I have to think twice because I have to go home and I don't get the luxury of just going home and saying, ah, eh, well, too bad for that community. I have to go home and look at my neighbors in the face and say, sorry, it got hard and I quit. And it just isn't going to happen. And I think that that's the same thing for that. That same commitment is is infiltrated throughout our team and throughout our staff, and so that's what drives us to keep going.
1: So would um, slumlords maybe be the orcs? Because mm. I know that, that's, that's a problem mm. throughout Oklahoma, <laughs> I mean, in Tulsa.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think people that, that are, you know, and I think it's just a general symptom of capitalism. I don't know if it's just slumlords in general, because I would argue that, you know, similarly when you have massive investments without an understanding of or a naive assumption that somehow those massive investments aren't going to have a negative impact on inclusion, um, I would argue, in some ways, have a more potent, challenging effect. Yeah, it's, it's, it just depends on how it goes down. At least, at least with the sum lords, sometimes you can put pressure on them in different ways. Unfortunately, folks that are making pretty massive investments sometimes is difficult to, to influence them in the same way.
0: If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, "Ew, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber-rich.
1: Tallgrass begs to differ! Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks. Like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of stuffy McLawyer pants, Esquire. But
0: I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess because they're nerds over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace.
1: So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of
0: course, there's more because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them pod for good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918 770 8940 are on their website which I'm not going to read out to you again it's in our show notes thank you Tallgrass but Chris I was going to say the slum words similar to like the Saxonville Bagginses of the of story so yeah trying, uh, that's
2: right the Saxonville yeah trying trying to steal all the stuff whenever you yep. went away on your adventures yep mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and it, just my ears twitch whenever I film them coming around yeah
0: Mm-hmm. Listen, I wish I had that sense for some of my family.
2: Um, just <laughs> kidding. I love all my family. Not that any of them listen. Um, you know you know, all the non-Lord of the Rings nerds just tuned out. Yeah. Like,
0: oh, my
1: God. We're done.
2: Listen,
0: the, <laughs> people who are not a fan of nerd things to, uh, tuned out of this podcast a long time ago. <laughs> true.
1: That's right. True.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'm trying to come up with a way to phrase this question, which is, what do you do? In a situation which is happening across america where there are multiple problems right with multiple histories and multiple attention spans attached to them and like for example with tulsa just you know a year past the centennial of the tulsa race massacre how like as a former nonprofit person i used to work for like One of the jobs I was working for, like, an arts and culture nonprofit, and it was very difficult to raise money, especially when the economy was bad, because, like, the focus would then be on, like, you know, uh, clothes and food and all, all, all the essentials you need before you think about art and culture and whatnot. And I feel like that sort of comes into play with nonprofit funding when it comes to repairing damage that white people have done. And a lot of tension deservedly was on Greenwood and North Tulsa over the last year. You know, we have many years that we owe North Tulsa, but like you don't want to compete with them, but you also want to remind everyone that this is also a problem. Like how, how do you deal with that? I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's an either or. First of all, I think that, you know, we have an abundance of resource in this, um, just to be perfectly candid. Um, And I think that we have, for example, if we set a vision as a city that we are, we don't want any child in the city to live in conditions of concentrated poverty. We could do it, and we could do it in the next twenty to twenty-five years. To be perfectly clear, especially, but the problem is, is that instead, what we do is, is we think about like how do we merely address the consequences of that concentrated poverty? So we focus our attention on programs and services as opposed, and and it happens over and over. That's like the default, right? As opposed to like, how do we eliminate the conditions that cause the need for those programs and services to begin with? And, and so I think it has to do with the lack of, um, there's a lack of, of vision sometimes around like what is possible. Um, there's a uh, disconnect from oftentimes decision makers having a lack of proximity to the people in which they're, they're intending to impact um and and I think too, that there's there's uh yeah, I think that there's there there can be a unified vision that I know for example, for us I, I don't see us competing with North Tulsa. In fact, you know, some of the things that we've been thoughtful about is as we build this mixed income neighborhood trust, we've got uh, uh, a couple of members on our board who are doing work in North Tulsa, and my goal was is we want to reserve a place for you so you can learn what we're doing and make se- see if it makes sense for your community, and if it does, then you know. We're an open book, you know, and and we've offered that to numerous other communities across the city to say, how can we serve you in a way that that allows you to learn from our mistakes, but also uh, thinking about intentionally how do we expand this vision to replicate this work in multiple neighborhoods across the city, and so we're already looking at a couple additional neighborhoods, for example, as to where we might expand to.
1: So I was going to ask along those lines. I mean, is there something unique about Kendall Whittier that that makes this successful? yes or do you think that this can be replicated with other neighborhoods
2: well so we're part of a national network called purpose-built communities there's 28 of us across the country and and this is being replicated in a whole set of diverse neighborhoods across you know across uh, the united states that being said um what i think is particularly um from our bias which is not necessarily purpose-built communities bias is that um we think it's most uh advantageous to identify neighborhoods that you could envision private investment happening in the near future with a little bit of, um, push. So the question is, is how do you go in initially, um, uh, secure enough, uh, property to protect it in perpetuity, um, prior to, you know, uh, that private investment happening. Um, but to, for us, we don't ever see ourselves kind of picking the most like the, the neighborhood on the furthest outskirts of town. Um, it's not to discredit that work. It's just, that's not for us. We don't believe that, that, that we, we, the way we often say is how do you leverage the power of capitalism with the morality of socialism? Right. Meaning that how do we take the private market and understand what we'll never figure this out or we'll never be, have enough resources just purely in the philanthropic space to get this done. So we need private investment to happen. Uh, so how do we not poo poo that? But at the same time, how do we make sure it's for everybody? How do we make sure that that improvement is for everybody? And more specifically, if we have a bias that is primarily for the people that have been there all along. And so, in fact, there's a whole you know set of people on our team that that's their job is to make sure that our community is the primary beneficiaries of the work. And that's their job. They're tasked to call me out on the carpet if, if we're doing something that isn't aligned with that. They're tasked to speak out, and we try to create a culture where that that speaking out is is welcome and encouraged.
1: So I feel like I have to ask uh, this question because we've kind of referenced it without referencing the word, but so how do you protect the community from gentrification, right? It's sort of yep. a, a buzzword, but really, how do you protect the people who live there and have grown the community from getting run out by people who are attracted now to Kindlewood Whittier and want to come and move in.
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely, um, the way I'd like to describe
1: it, if I can, is
2: inclusive versus exclusive growth. Gentrification to me is exclusive growth. And the problem with gentrification, the word is we've actually been labeled on several websites merely because we're, um, progressing or we're growing at a faster rate than the city of Tulsa as being quote unquote gentrified. And I, my experience is not yielding that out. In fact, I can name very few individuals that we've lived alongside for the last twenty years that have actually been moved out or even pushed out. And moreover, about ninety percent of all the development right now, we're seeing five hundred and fifty units roughly that that have been created in this neighborhood over the last ten years. We got another two to three hundred coming up in the next few years. Um, so far, almost none of those uh, units have been developed on pre-existing. Uh, homes, like there was no displacement that happened. These were empty lots. Um, there are some exceptions for sure, but even those exceptions waited till those individuals moved or decided to go somewhere else, um, and that took some time. So, so I would say that in terms of gentrification, first of all, in terms of that being clear about what we're talking about. So, second is is first and foremost, it has to be around protections around real estate. And then, and then, secondly, it has to be around a comprehensive approach because people don't choose neighborhoods just because of a house. They choose neighborhoods because it's a great place to raise their kid, and that that in, um, assumes a great place to invest their kid in the local school. You know, most parents, um, I think, would uh, appreciate and desire to be able to have their kid walk across the street as opposed to carting them to you know some private or charter school across town, and that's not the bridge private or charters, but I'm just saying that's the vision that our community said is we want high quality neighborhood serving public schools in this in this community. So um so I think that it's a comprehensive approach in summary, comprehensive approach that is led and guided by the vision and knowledge and expertise in our community and that involves uh, real estate protection at scale.
1: One thing with what you see with <clears throat> Kendall Whittier, what you're starting to see with that um uh Greenwood District is trying to do and other places in Tulsa Sometimes almost feels like a cosmic joke. Where, if you look at what areas of those areas of town were like, a hundred years ago, beautiful, walkable, largely inclusive spaces um, that where where people could live, walk, grow, work, play, everything. Then, for various reasons, those are places where were destroyed, and now we have groups trying to recapture that sort of magic that that existed and to me it's it's sort of it's sort of a little bit of a a tragedy that uh, we see in our community that we're trying to rebuild what existed over again because we lost it
2: no agreed i mean and and moreover um i think that we've had an opportunity over the last several years to to actually ensure that that growth is inclusive but we've um, been focusing on the trees to save the trees, and we were going to lose the forest. Um, said differently, is there's a very um, there's a very specified you know parcels of land that I would say ninety nine percent of our attention on, and meanwhile everything around it is is our you know has has been being purchased and you know acquired, and by the time that you figure out that little area, which is significant, don't get me wrong, um, everything around it has already been. You know bought up because you made those announcements clear and you, you know, and there wasn't a drive again for protections, and so we're seeing that happening. But, uh, you know, this is this is why there's a mantra that it, you know, it, it if it's not for us, it's again, it's, if it's not with us, then it's against us, right? Um, mm-hmm. so it's it's uh, it's an understandable mantra. Um, what I've seen particularly or specifically with our Latino centric neighborhoods is that that history of, of broken promises, at least in Tulsa has not had the same, there's not the same history there. And so it's incredibly incumbent upon organizations like ours to be very thoughtful about how you don't repeat those. And part of that is making sure that the structures are in place that says we're in this for a long haul and we're not going away. Right. And, 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 That we're again incredibly informed and supported by the community members themselves.
1: Do do you see a future where your approach to affordable housing that you eventually apply that to some of the commercial properties in your area?
2: Absolutely, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean that's that's why we included uh, inclusive economic growth as one of our core pillars now as of last year, actually two years ago, I guess, pandemics gone, gone by quick, but um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have to. And um, because the problem is, is if our community particularly in Kendall Whittier, our Latino communities, if they do not continue to see themselves in the commercial retail spaces in the neighborhood, they're going to lose ownership. And it, it, um, it risks unraveling all the great work that's been done so far, right? Because if, for example, you know they have to go to 11th and Garnett to go to Pancho Naya to the local panaderia, like why would they stay here, right? If that's a place that's important to them, or if they if they have to go, you know, across town to get to the the nearest Supermercados Morelos or Las Americas, why would they why would they live here? And so it's something actually that uh, is a huge, powerful lesson that i was I was actually um, the light bulb came on when conversations with Greg Robinson about this, and that was his comment, you know, is, is, is what are we doing to make sure that that the community sees themselves in the retail spaces? and And that really jarred my thinking to to that led to that inclusion of one of our core pillars, because historically and, and in the purpose-built communities, it's not one of the pillars, but now it is.
1: I mean, I mean, you're right. It seems like that's a c- critical component to it because keeping housing affordable, placemaking, all of that is important. And I would say
2: placekeeping is an important, actually, that place-keeping, thanks, to, it uh, thanks to Cynthia Hasso uh, gave me that term just recently, and it's been really resonating with me because it's not about placemaking. The, pl- the, the place had already been made. Um, our community did a phenomenal job in the late 80s, early 90s to making you know, a solid place, you know, largely led by St. Francis Catholic Church Um, Of making a solid place for immigrants to feel welcome, Um, then I would say Kendall Whittier Elementary came and and built upon that historical legacy, and uh, so now the question is: is Can we continue to keep that sense of place? Right, because when you look at placemaking in a place like Kendall Whittier, that's largely a, a, a white person's perspective. Like, how are we making a place that's artsy and you know trendy, so that you know my family feels cool that we can go over to this little. You know, garden over here and do this, that, and the other, and it's all cool. That's not dis- dis- the. That I'm not trying to discount those efforts. In fact, that's part of the, what I think is the beauty of Kendall Whittier is that we are this inclusive neighborhood. That, um, in fact, when you look at a lot of the data, we're one of the most inclusive neighborhoods in the city, and um, or desegregated, I should say, neighborhoods in the city. Um, but if we don't pay enough attention to the most vulnerable, um, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose it. And uh, you know, uh that's part of that's part of what we just decided that we've got to step up and and do more of. And, and it was really, really highlighted in the pandemic when we saw over and over and over again. And it just, you know, um just how many times our community members, our Latino business owners were either totally left out of any type of aid or explicitly excluded. And you know, we just said enough is enough and we're tired of it. Um, And by the way, that goes for representation by Latinos in the city as well, um, which is disgusting. Um, You know, I just think about, you know, four years ago when my wife decided to take a stab at running for Tulsa school board. And the reason she did that is because she knew that it was going to take somebody with an American last name, like Western who didn't speak with an accent, um, to, to break the glass ceiling for an organization that had never had a Latino representative in, in the entire history of their organization, which by the way, I know that the status is sometimes told that Latinos make up 38% of the student body. Um, the way what we should be saying is actually they make up the majority of the student body. They are the largest group of students, student population in Tulsa Public Schools. And it is like me going out to Broken Arrow and saying, congratulations, you got your first white school board member. I mean, that's how insane that is, right? And to this day, there are only two elected officials. Well, technically three, but I'm not counting the third. But there are two elected officials um, that are from the Latino community that have connections with Latino community. And they're both on school boards and they're both being berated, uh, uh, pushed against, you know, uh, called out, harassed. Um, and this city's got a long way to go when it comes to that. And that's, you know, and I, I, you know, it's something that, um, I'm determined to do something about.
1: That kind of matches with the stat I saw recently. I think it was the most recent census. Um, I think it's under 18 in Tulsa. Um, whites are no longer the majority. If you look at all the, the whole population of under 18, Whites are no longer the majority, which, you know, assuming that that we can keep people here in Tulsa means that that we're not too far from a day where, you know, we're a population that is no longer a majority white population. And we have to come to terms with that and and represent our community and our government and other other positions more effectively.
2: I mean, you look at our authorities, boards and commissions alone. And I, I can't tell you how many like decision making tables I've been to that have tremendous impact on what dollars are being spent. And I look around the room, there's not a single Latino in this space, not a single one. And it, it's just unacceptable um, when you think about like where the city is heading and who is contributing to this economy. Um, and moreover, um, to your point, Chris, is that. Um, when you look at our student body population, uh, in terms of birth rates alone, our birth rate, whites and blacks in the city are not even replacing their parents, in terms of the number of birth rates, and that's not the case for Latinos. So, when you want to look to the future of what's happening, um, we've got to understand that that there's a strong Latino future for this 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 community, and the the challenge is, is that we have invested little to nothing, in that development of leaders to stand up and so it's one of the things that we two years ago we launched our community leadership institute with with um, some generous uh support from the united way innovation grant and now supported by the Schusterman family uh family philanthropies but it's it's hopefully going to be the next step in trying to really prepare our in our our immigrant community um to to really take on those positions of, of leadership I would argue that, you know, what Hania's role on the school board did is it prepared the way for Tulsa to have its first first-generation immigrant in Hudith Barba to take on the role um, in the school board seat. So, Because because obviously Hudith's experience, experiences, lived experiences far outweigh the connections to the community than Hania's experiences did. And yet, you know, you see what's happening to her on the school board. And so it's... Um, there's, it's twofold. You got to prepare folks, and then our Latino community, and they're growing in numbers doing this. But one of the the kind of encouragements I keep giving to our Latino community is that when when folks step up, you've got to have their back. You know, the 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 garbage that was piled on Hanya during her time and tenure at the school board was just unacceptable. And what was even more unacceptable is 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 the silence that often came uh, when that happened. And uh, we're not seeing that anymore. People are getting tired of it. And so I'm excited to see it. So normally we end our interviews asking
0: how people can support you. And we're going to do that. But before we get there, I want to ask you one question. And it'll be interesting for the three of us to answer this. What are your thoughts uh, so far, even though all we've seen are teasers and trailers of the Amazon uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power TV show?
2: You know, I mean, it looks pretty amazing and the commitment that Jeff Bezos is doing, you know, with all the relevant criticisms to to him personally, he seems to be a big fan and man, he's going all out. So it's either going to be a colossal screw up or amazing. And so I'm hoping for the latter. Uh, <laughs> so far the trailers look pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm jazzed. Um, I'm ready for something. I mean, I, I, so just to put it in perspective, man, I mean, talk about nerds. We we literally watch the entire extended edition of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings annually every year during Christmas is just like some people are watching like, you know, some type of like, you know, the elf or something Christmassy. Now we're, we're pulling out Lord of the Rings full stop, man. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I've seen that thing. In fact, in fact, my nephew saw it, it for the first time when we watched Return of the King en route to Kansas City Sunday to go watch uh, the, the USA play uh, Uruguay in what is known as football or what we call the, the, the football the rest of the world plays. Um, uh, so so you know, it was so super you, exciting. So you're, you're, you're not a supporter of
0: the uh, t- hashtag team No Lady Dwarfs. No, no,
2: okay. it's uh, it's it's all good, man. I'm looking forward to the lady dwarves, but rumor has it that they get confused as men. Yes, yeah. the beards. <laughs> well, listen, I,
0: you know, it's gonna be interesting because again, what's like, not to get too deep into it, but like, Amazon literally only has the rights to use information that's in the Lord of the Rings books, not in the Cimmerillion. So like, they're having to make up a lot of things, and you know what? That's okay.
2: Like it just is. Tell me well, a good story. I mean, story. honestly, Peter Jackson made up quite a bit too. So yeah, especially <laughs> in the Hobbit. Um, yeah. I mean, my my daughter absolutely loves the story of Arwen, and that just, frankly, was was fabricated. So <laughs> <laughs> hashtag, yeah, Tolkien was team
0: hashtag no ladies talking. So that's uh, true. Um, so and <laughs> yeah, like again, not his fault. Like culture of the time. Like nobody's true. perfect. True. Um, but so. Transitioning back to growing together, how
2: can listeners of uh, Pod for Good support your organization? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a number of ways. Obviously, um, one of the easiest ways is to contribute. You know, go to our website, www.gttulsa.org, and there's a a donate button up there. Um, We also, um, yeah, we also have, if there's particular interest in kind of the economic development or the housing work, That's another way. And then finally, um, we actually operate the local communities and schools affiliate. Um, we have site coordinators at seven different schools and they're regularly looking for opportunities to, to, for folks to volunteer and engage. So, um, so those are all, you know, uh, certainly look on our website, check it out. Um, let us know. And, and we're always down for, we're always down for, uh, having other champions around this work, um, to, to advance, you know, justice based solutions. Well, I
0: know that when we talked about this off air, you, you want to be part of Pot for Good's outro for a very special reason. So we're going to go into it right now. So uh, Kirk, thank you for joining us today. Please make sure to follow Growing Together, both on their website, on Facebook, wherever they are. Go to Kendall Whittier, buy some things in stores. And you know what? If you want to,
2: you can move there. There are homes. Very nice homes. That's right. And I'll put in a plug, especially for Pancho and I Bakery. If you have yes, not gone so there. so Good. You have not gone to Pancho so Naya. Um, you are honestly missing a ton of stuff. In fact, um, I just I want to do a shout out too to Pancho Naya. I. I don't know if you saw that they are actually now contracting with Bill and Ruth. So Bill and Ruth, uh, basically, their baked bread is made by Pancho Naya now. Wow, oh, that's awesome! So all right, shout out to them. Shout out to them. Yeah.
0: So I can't remember exactly what I say in my outro, but something like, please make sure to subscribe <laughs> for Pod for Good anywhere you get your podcast. Tulsa, get it done. Broken Arrow, get your shit together damn right Uh, there it is thank you all everybody and i hope you enjoyed this episode